If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. The Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos, and podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast that brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. This week, our speakers debate the functions and limitations of supposedly objective truth. To explore this idea, we have philosopher, psychoanalyst and sociologist Renata Seletzel, philosopher of consciousness Philip Goff, and Simon Blackburn, best known for his work in meta-ethics. If you enjoy the episode, don't forget to like and subscribe, join in the conversation on Facebook and Twitter, and head over to iai.tv for more articles, videos and podcasts. Now over to our host, Joanna Kavanagh. So for our opening question, and I'll ask Renata Selectual to begin. Renata, should we embrace uncertainty? Definitely. We can only ever embrace certain certainty. And it was already medieval philosopher, theologian, Nicholas de Cusa, who you know, spoke about the necessity of understanding the limits of our knowledge. And you know, his term, Dr. Ignorantia, learned ignorance, was a very important kind of a first reasoning about the necessity to sort of understand what cannot be known. In his case, he was mostly speaking about God, the infinite. Uh, and I think that this kind of a reasoning continues to our days. A few years ago, a very interesting book was published by American scientist Stuart Feierstein called uh, Ignorance, How It Drives Science. So the uncertainty or understanding the lack of knowledge is actually what pushes us forward. On the individual level, psychoanalysts know now for more than 100 years uh, that people claim rationally that they want to know, but actually they have a passion for not knowing, in a way, passion for ignorance, as Jacques Lacan, French psychoanalyst, said. But even more importantly, psychoanalysts would point out that when they encounter people who actually have certainty, who are lacking doubt, then they start to question whether they are maybe dealing with people who have a psychotic structure. So to have on a personal level, you know, a question about yourself, who you are, what do you want, what do others say, might be, you know, precisely the uncertainty to which we never find an answer. And, you know, it is an uncertainty which might be painful, but it is also an engine of our drives, our desires, and it, it is an uncertainty which we need to learn how to live with. Thanks very much, Renata. I'll now turn to Philip Goff uh, with the same question. 
Well, actually, rather than living in a period of uncertainty, I actually think we're living through a period of false certainty. There is a, a popular narrative, very popular narrative, according to which for thousands of years, philosophers tried to speculate about the ultimate nature of reality. And then we discovered the scientific method and the days of speculation ended. Now, I don't think anyone thinks we have all the answers, but I think many people think we know with something close to certainty the way to go about getting them, namely through the scientific method. I think this kind of scientism is in many ways the new religion. Now, the, the success of physical science for the last 400 years or so is, is phenomenal and, and rightly celebrated. But in my view, it has been so successful precisely because it focused on a quite limited task, roughly constructing mathematical models to describe, uh, predict the behavior of matter. And that's very useful, but there's lots of things I think we know to be real that just simply can't be fully accounted for in that way. Facts about consciousness, facts about maths and logic, facts about value and significance. Uh, now, that's not the fault of physical science. It was never intended by people like Galileo to, uh, for, that, for those purposes. But I think we're going for a period of history where people are so blown away by the, the success of science and the incredible technology it's produced that has such a visceral effect on you that we become inclined to think that the story we get from physical science is a complete story of the whole of reality. And I think this leads to an incomplete and impoverished picture of reality. We know we have feelings and experiences, and yet our official scientific worldview tells us there's just electrochemical signaling in our heads. We know that human trafficking is objectively abhorrent, and yet our official worldview tells us we live in a valueless universe. And I think, if nothing else, I don't think this is not very good for our mental health. So I hope that as a society, we, we one day rediscover the importance of philosophy. Um, the role of philosophy, in my opinion, is to take what we know from natural science, but also things we know to exist in other ways, facts about consciousness, the reality of abstract objects, the reality of value, and to synthesize all these together in a single unified worldview. So I'm not sure that would take us to certainty, but I think it would remove a false certainty we currently live with and thereby bring us a little bit closer to the truth. Thanks very much, Philip. And finally to Simon Blackburn with the same question. Should we embrace uncertainty, Simon? Well, I'm happy to say that uh, to some extent, I agree with both of the previous speakers. Uh, I agree with Renata in saying that um, the impetus for science is ignorance. Uh, Nicholas de Cousa was absolutely right about that. And that we do well to embrace uncertainty if only as a drive to inquiry. And it's the processes of inquiry, which I think we should all admire, and those especially includes the processes of the very successful physical sciences. Those aren't just, I think, the questions of mathematical models. I mean, if you think of science like geology, people used to think the world was 6,000 years old. We now know that it's something well, the universe is something like 14 billion years old and the Earth is 4 billion years old. So that's an increase in knowledge. It's not particularly an increase in a mathematical model, but it is an increase in the understanding of the uniformities of nature, which we see all around us, and which enables us to construct a timeline. And I think that's one of the great successes of physical science. But there are many, many others one could concentrate on. However, I do agree with Philip that we have to be careful about supposing that the methods of physical science will tell us everything we need to know. And I thoroughly agree that the methods of philosophy are needed as a, as a professional philosopher, I've got to say that. That is, 
uh, we need to know when it's not just a question of more experiment or more calculation, but also a question of expanding or changing uh, the conceptual schemes with which we look at things. However, I don't think that that is as radical as Philip perhaps hopes it is. There are many, many ways of trying to reconcile, for example, our knowledge of right and wrong with the physical world, with the, with the conception of ourselves as physical animals. I think there are many ways of doing the same for mathematics itself and logic. And eventually, I think there's going to be ways of doing it for consciousness. The, the phrase, the hard problem of consciousness, has been much in the news, I think, for no very good reason, because it's been there since Descartes. But I don't believe there is a hard problem of consciousness. I think the only hard problem in the, air is, in, in the area is uh, stopping thinking that there's a hard problem of consciousness. So on that, I think I disagree with Philip. Anyhow, embrace uncertainty, be careful of... Uh, false claims to certainty, and learn what you can before you, you talk your mouth off. Thanks very much. That sounds like a very good adage um, for life in general. Um, so we're going to turn to the first um, rough area of discussion in this debate, to a question of are there answers to be found? And all of our discussants already broached this question. Um, and again, in the remarks I read at the beginning, there was a sense that there was this teleological notion that if we all quested hard enough, then we'd shine a light into the darkness to mix metaphors. Um, and now this has all been tested by postmodern theories and um, other forms of doubt. Um, Simon, I wanted to turn to you first. And you mentioned there are answers to be found at times. And you've used the example in the past of maps that you, know, you can definitely answer the question of if a map is correct by slamming into the mountain that wasn't represented on the map. I mean, this is a very tangible example is a, a definite answer to a question. Would you say then these are physical questions and answers that we can identify? Yes, well, I mean, obviously our senses are uh, designed to make us responsive to the immediate environment, the environment that causes sense experience. And we're very good at that. Maps are an example of uh, the way in which people can assimilate, um, bring together um, knowledge of the physical world and represent it to each other so we can signal what the world's like to each other with a map. Um, I think maps are very important for another reason. I and mean, one of the postmodernist metaphors was always that of the, you know, they're different perspectives on things, a kind of relativistic thought that uh, seemed to assail many postmodernists. Um, and of course, in a sense, that's true. Um, for example, uh, you could instruct a map maker to go out to a landscape and map the uh, crops, map the geology, map the population density, map the rainfall, map God knows what. There are many perspectives, um, but they don't clash. There are many perspectives on the Eiffel, Eiffel Tower. You can see it from Montmartre, or you can see it from the Champ de Mars, and they don't clash. In fact, our uh, conception of the external world is a way of um, integrating uh, the moment-to-moment -moment views we get as we move about it. As counsel, that's the function of, um, uh, of our, um, you know, integrating brains. And um, I think the postmodernists were far too quick to think that difference of interpretation and difference of perspective ine inevitably led to a fragmentation and to the disappearance of integrated knowledge. I don't think it does. And I think that proper concentration on the notion of perspective uh, stops us thinking that it does. 
But do you think also, I mean, you mentioned that we will find the solution to the hard problem of consciousness, and I'm going to bring Philip in on this in a moment as well. I mean, is that then a, a something where you do see a scientific quest or is it a philosophical quest or a combination? Do we need, um, as Philip was suggesting, several disciplines to answer this? Is the framework that we're working in at the moment uh, mm -hmm. sufficient to these questions, would you say? Well, I think it depends what framework we talk about. I mean, my view that there's not a hard problem of consciousness is perhaps unusual, but I think that a proper attention to, for example, Wittgenstein's philosophical investigations and some of the arguments in that uh, softens you up for realizing that um, things are as you would expect them to be if you've got a very complicated animal dealing with a lot of sensory experience and adapted to make very quick responses to the environment in the light of those sensory experiences. How else would we expect it to be? You can't do that if you're asleep. You can't do it if you're unconscious. Um, so consciousness is, a, is, I think, a living solution to a living problem, which adaptation has um, brought about. And that's excellent. Thank heavens for it. I mean, Philip, you, I want to bring you in on this because this is obviously the, the ma major subject of your book. And I mean, you suggested that actually the framework's wrong. It's in a way the question that's being posed that's wrong, the dualistic framework, mind versus matter. Um, so, but do you feel that the answer you're proposing, is it a proposition or is it something of which you're quite certain within the framework you've presented? Yeah, so I think... Me and Simon agree on, and I'm sure Renato as well, on, you know, the importance of philosophy in various ways. Um, Simon points to sort of maybe conceptual clarity in times when we need to revise our picture of the world. I, I think the difference, certainly between me and Simon, is are there data beyond the data of observation experiment? And I, I, I think there certainly are. I mean, in, in the case of consciousness, this is not, feelings and experiences are not something we know about on the basis of observation experiment, we know about them through our immediate awareness of our feelings and experiences. If you religiously follow the idea that you know, the only data to inform our theory of reality are uh, observation experiment, you wouldn't believe in consciousness. I think Daniel Dennett is wonderfully consistent on this point. Um, so I think that's the most obvious case. But I think, you know, I mean, there are also, I think, facts about value, facts about abstract objects. Now, it would it, it, there isn't space here to completely debate, for example, Simon's Wittgensteinian diffusing of the problem of consciousness or his um, expressivism about ethics, where in some sense ethical facts are in some way reflect our, our attitudes or, or whatever way he has to diffuse Platonism about mathematics. But, I mean, why do people feel forced to these options? I think it's because something that starts in the 18th century with Hume and Kant, this just, oh my God, science is going so well. This must be the full truth, but I just think there's no need to be pressed into that and to be moved away from, you know, our ordinary understanding of moral facts as objective facts about reality. The, the understanding of most mathematicians as of their subject as Platonism, that they're discovering facts about a mathematical realm and our ordinary understanding of consciousness. So I think, you know, it's obviously a huge debate and we're not going to go justice to it here. But I think people are forced to these more deflationary options because of this background scientific picture, which is there, even though we, we, we both agree there's some role for philosophy. So that's my stopping point, really. There is data beyond scientific data. And that's what I think we need to reach as, as a scientific and philosophical community. And I also want to bring Renata in because you, you write about ignorance as at times 
um, of benefit. And I mean, Philip's mentioning there's data beyond scientific data. Is there also data beyond all data, potentially, you know, gaps that we can't necessarily, um, you know, actually shine the light, to use the metaphor again, into? And is there an argument um, for accepting that some things are not knowable? Or is there a paradox in that because you'd have to know all things in order to know that some things are knowable? No, the, let's say um, knowledge from psychoanalysis have been pointing out, you know, from the beginning that there is a very much an unknown in the subject and in his or her perception of the world. So, you know, both uh, are lacking clear identity and we are creating a kind of a temporary story about our own clear identity, uh, a fantasy, of our consistency and we are looking through a fantasy uh, lens uh, at the world and you know we are very much looking through a subjective fantasy lens and you know even with maps unfortunately things are getting more complicated as simon probably knows you know google maps uh, can be highly unreliable especially rich people have had the power to have you know their villages or houses erased from it so that they cannot be discovered and, you know, even, you know, also our perceptions, for example, about what neuroscience has, is bringing uh, to the understanding of subjectivity is very much linked to our kind of a fantasy of what fMRI actually tell, tells us. There is data, there are computers, there are programs behind it, there are subjective interpretations of the images, but we can think sometimes as if we are dealing with a kind of a photography of the inside of the subject. So, which is why I don't think that we can embrace that, we, that there is nothing to be known. You know, there are, you know, elements where we have to say that a science has pointed really to a, a big problem like climate change. You know, I definitely don't want to embrace relativism here uh, or climate change denial, but, you know, doubt is an essential engine, you know, of science. Um, can I just ask you quickly, Renata, as well, you mentioned subjectivity. Um, would you, I mean, William James said that um, experience is empirical data, that we accumulate data in our own lives. Would you then say that we can um, rely on the, the veridical nature of our subjective experiences then? Yeah, but these subjective experiences, you know, are really subjective. And although, you know, we are living in a society where other experiences and also sort of like kind of a socially organized space culture language is very much determining how we interpret the experience but you know the experience of each individual can be you know also in a way highly unreliable for others because you know each perceives traumas or especially painful things or things that are unknown in you know a very individual way and is that, Philip, is that a problem with a synthesized theory of consciousness, maybe? You know, that question, the famous Nagel question, what is it like to be a bat? But then Peter Hacker's rebuff, well, what, what's it like to be Peter Hacker? I mean, each individual consciousness is so very discrete and differentiated, is it, is it not? Is it, is it possible to have a, a, an overarching answer to that general question? I think so. In fact, I think you've got a nice disagreement between the three of us. I'm probably on Simon's side, maybe more on the the desire for objective truth and there is a world out there to be discovered. I just think 
there's more data, as I said, than, than strictly scientific data. But um, yeah, so the problem of consciousness, it's true that, you know, human experience is so varied and different, but I think we're actually doing an incredible job at, you know, um, mapping the kind of correlations between certain kinds of brain activity and certain kinds of experience, and even getting systematic enough to make a stab at what in general is required from brain activity for consciousness in general. Um, but, you know, I think that scientific task is not, does not get us the full answers because we just end up with correlations between, oh, this kind of brain activity goes with this kind of experience. And that leaves all the metaphysical options open. The dualist has an account of that, the, the materialist, the panpsychist. So that doesn't settle the question. Uh, we, we then have to turn to philosophy and try and adjudicate these various options on non-experimental grounds. Um, I think we're in a slightly similar case in quantum mechanics, whereas, where there is there's the equations and there's just lots of different theories as to what reality corresponds to those equations. And we have to try and distinct, distinguish between them on the basis of non-experimental considerations. This is where science meets philosophy. It makes people nervous if you can't do an experiment but I think that's a psychological feeling rather than something that's rational, this kind of obsession with getting only focusing on things that can be answered with experiments. I'm going to move us into the next area, but just quickly, I want Simon just to respond about maps. Um, just quickly, but also, I mean, you may not uh, find it in your heart to defend Google Maps, but we were also, Renato also mentioned fMRI scans, and that is an attempt to map the brain and to map emotions and thoughts onto physical um, aspects of the brain. I mean, would you also then um, defend that sort of mapping? Um, I, de I defend the enterprise of trying to find those correlations. Yes, I think that's a very important thing to try and do, if only because um, you, you could learn that insults to various parts of the brain will have specific behavioral uh, upshots and consequences, and you might be able to mitigate those, you might be able to understand better people who suffer from um, traumas and insults to parts of the brain. So I think there's a huge, you know, I, I, I am 100% behind the enterprises of neuroscience. Of course, um, results can be exaggerated. They can be presented as certain when they're not certain. Uh, they can be presented and have been presented as uh, much more far-reaching than I think they are. One of the most famous is the um, experiments of Benjamin Libert, who, who found that there's a, um, a, a, a an action potential, there's as it were signs in the brain of activity, something, an action about to happen, um, before you're conscious of deciding to do the action. And this was trumpeted as a huge sort of um, uh, reputation of any idea of free will, uh, which it wasn't, and that was a, an over-interpretation of it. Um, but of course, the enterprise of showing that it wasn't is a philosophical enterprise because you've got to get both things firmly in mind: what the activation potential is and what what a free action is. I mean, um, in, the, in this case, it seems to me not the least surprising that my brain should show some activity before I'm aware that I'm going to get up in the morning. Um, I think lots of things happen as I'm lying in bed, wondering whether to, it's time for tea yet. Um, and you're, you're signalling us into actually the next area, so maybe if we move into that, um, okay. which is this idea of whether we need 
shared frameworks of belief. And when you were talking about free will, that made me think, um, in a sense, in order to have a sense that our actions are meaningful and that they, they denote um, selfhood and they denote a decision, in a way we do need certain, possibly a belief in the reality that we're working in, possibly a belief in the self that's making those decisions. Um, and I, Renata, I wanted to ask you about this um, to start with. I mean, presumably that's the case, isn't it? That in order to act meaningfully, we do, we do need some kind of fundamental foundation that the, the person is doing something that's meaningful, at least within a localized subjective sense. And also I wanted to ask you about language um, as a kind of associated question. Presumably we're having this debate. We all believe in language to some extent that it's worth saying anything at all. So are these two possible necessary shared areas of belief? Yeah, very much so. You know, so Hegel was speaking about Sittlichkeit, uh, you know, the kind of ethical lives which allows us to understand laws as such. So, so that would be a kind of a shared background, which is very important, you know, uh, in society as such uh, for understanding of anything. Now, I think that today's uh, times we are observing also in you know, new types of shared kind of spaces where beliefs are, beliefs are formed, which is why we are speaking about internet bubbles, you know, and you know, all kinds of new forms of identification where you know, the belief into whether something is true or not is becoming kind of secondary to a certain kind of an enjoyment in the shared space or the emotions which are triggered in the shared space. Here I would uh, quote a research, uh, quite a new research done by a group of researchers led by Michael Bank Peterson. It was done, um, with, uh, shared research between Danish and American uh, scientists uh, who were looking at people who are sharing uh, fake news uh, around the internet. And they were questioning whether people who are sharing passionately misinformation believe in their ideas. And, you know, actually, majority of people didn't believe, didn't believe in the news that they were sharing, you know, the so-called fake news, fake news, but they actually found an enjoyment in the sharing, and especially an enjoyment, as the researchers said, to bring the world to the end, or to bring chaos, an enjoyment in chaos, and an enjoyment in triggering emotions in, in the opposite group, or the people who sort of have opposite beliefs, and I think that here we see that you know the kind of the, the question of the known or you know uh, the knowledge belief in knowledge you know plays kind of a secondary role to this kind of a shared space which is more and more formed on the internet. But those people, would you say then they knew for definite that the news they were sharing was fake, so they had a sense of true and false, um, but they just enjoyed, as you say, disseminating something that was yeah. actually. Yeah, they, they were sharing something they didn't believe in uh, necessarily but they were still sharing it to get the result, which was trigger anger, emotions, and to send everything to hell, as some commented, you know, their activity. Right. That's, and that's there, is a, there is maybe a desire for a rebirth behind, you know, starting from, from a new in, in this, you know, kind of an enjoyment in chaos. Yes. And that's, I mean, Philip, if I bring you in on this, I mean, we've, we've heard that this notion that anything goes has then been exploited by, for example, Sokovian theatre of the absurd, um, in order in a way to diminish people's sense of the point of action of doing anything at all, because if everything is false, or you can't verify anything, then 
how can you in any way adopt a position which leads to lassitude? I mean, w- would you like to come in on this? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it would be nice, wouldn't it, if, if everyone could work out the truth for themselves as an individual. The problem is knowledge is so specialised these days. You know, it's just impossible to stay up to date with the cutting-edge economics and cutting-edge climate science, cutting-edge physics. So that's why I think, and I'm very worried about the kind of things uh, Renata just said, I mean, I think it's more important than ever to have shared, uh, respected public institutions like think tanks, like universities, like uh, the peer review system. And, uh, and one thing you know, that we can look to, maybe not for certainty, but for well-informed opinion. And um, you know, one thing that's very important in this context is conflicts of interests and the importance of dealing with that with total uh, transparency of funding. I think that's one very important way we can deal with fake news. So it's not so much the importance of shared belief but shared public institutions that we can trust, I think, are very important. Do you also think then that, that in order to counter the kind of competing cries of fake news, um, that people should then reveal their own biases? I mean, because sometimes, you know, people get, um, you know, that notion that because someone isn't objective, then they can't have a view on anything. And that becomes the kind of cries of accusatory relativism almost. But you, would you then say if someone reveals their bias, they can speak from that position more honestly? Yeah, I mean, we, we all have our biases, we all have our opinions, but I think it's very important for the public listening to know that information. I mean, I think the BBC aspires to, to be uh, more impartial than it in fact is. Well, let's not get into that. But, you know, okay, I'm not saying that these think tanks that keep, so-called think tanks, who keep their funders secret are just doing, you know, whatever they're paid to do. But as the public, we have the right to factor in that information in order to assess, that is important information for assessing what is being told us, whereas often think tanks are just presented as completely impartial and we don't, we know we're not told this information about who is funding them. And we've seen, you know, with the tobacco industry, the fossil fuel industry, how they have, um, you know, interfered in scientific knowledge. So this is incredibly dangerous in a democracy. And I think with vast inequality, it it only gets even worse, these kind of conflicts of interest. I want to ask, I mean, Simon, in terms of moral philosophy, and please respond as well to um, Philip and Renata, but specifically a question about moral philosophy. I guess if, if, the, if there are many, many dogmatists who are very assured of their absolute positions, and then lots of rather contemplative relativists who say, well, everything goes, and is there a kind of moral um, requirement to adopt a position, or as Philip's saying, to um, call on expertise to say there are um, kind of hierarchies of knowledge? Is that something you? Uh, would perceive as useful. I'm not sure about hierarchies of knowledge in connection with morality. I've got a, a slight sympathy for the sort of Tolstoyan view that the the good-hearted, simple peasant knows as much morality as um, the, the the vicar in his pulpit. Um, so, so there, I'm a little bit sceptical. But I thoroughly agree with Philip's uh, campaign, as it were, or you know his. Uh, is uh, speaking in favour of the incredible importance in society of, of authoritative institutions um, in science, in um, all, all sorts of things, in economics. And um, as soon as money gets into the picture and power gets into the picture, uh, there's a danger that objectivity is um, compromised and corrupted. And uh, we need to know when that, they, that that danger is is there. If 
you know, if this spokesman who says that um, cigarettes are safe turns out to be funded by the tobacco industry, uh, then, of course, you, you're much more likely and it's much more reasonable to completely discount their evidence. And um, it's only when people who are not funded by the tobacco industry start saying that cigarettes are safe, but that very seldom happens, it seems. So, um, so yes, I mean, uh, um, understanding sources of bias is very important. And, of course, it's not just funding. There are other sources of bias. Um, you know, the Metropolitan Police famously was, um, I think, quite reasonably charged with extreme racial bias over the uh, declining years of the 20th century. Um, and uh, race, uh, prejudice of all sorts can, uh, can infect inquiries. Um, but all that just shows you've got to be, uh, to, to worship objective inquiry more than people are inclined to do. Um, they, um, I mean, Philip mentioned earlier that, that science had laid claim to much of the terrain of objectivity. I mean, as a philosopher, would you then come back on that? I mean, Philip said it was a rather impoverished view to think that this one discipline had the most objective perception of things. Is this something you, you uh, would respond against? Well, I think the word objective is very interesting. I mean, I mean, you know, Orwell said that the notion of objective truth was going out of the world. I think he, I think he got his categories wrong. I don't think truths are objective or not. Uh, what's objective are processes of inquiry. Um, and my job, if you're charged with a crime, you may be a postmodernist as much as you like, but if you're charged with a crime, you're jolly well going to hope that the police investigation is objective provided you're innocent. Um, that is that they're more likely to find out the truth than if they did it carelessly or sloppily or with active bias. And, um, and I think, um, you know, um, insisting on honesty and objectivity. If I could return for a moment to um, uh, people, um, you know, transmitting fake news on the internet and conspiracy theories and all that sort of thing, I, uh, I only learned today, I only learned by listening that, um, in fact, uh, from Renata, that um, a lot of them don't believe what they're um, saying. I always thought the conspiracy theories were, as somebody once said, uh, a device for making stupid people feel intelligent. Um, but in fact, it sounds as though it's a device for making um, uh, vandals feel sort of um, proper about themselves. Because it is very like vandalizing the public space or littering the public space. It's a way of shutting out the air, shutting out civilization, shutting out the things we do know. And um, that's a sort of teenage, um, you know, adolescent um, desire, I think, very often, destructive desire. Um, the upper classes used to smash bottles and now people try and smash the public spaces. Well, let's move then. I mean, in a way, again, uh, we've covered some of this already, but let's move into our third area, which is whether we can escape uncertainty, whether that would kind of lead us into illusions and be in itself an illusion. Um, and I mean, I guess, Renata, I wanted to ask you this. Um, I mean, so uh, Jung, for example, said that if you can, um, irrespective of whether it's true or not, um, believe in an afterlife, then certainly after a certain age, you might have a nicer time and you'd feel a bit better about the second half of your life. Um, I mean, is that something 
uh, redemptive to accept something that helps you to work on the basis that if we can never know the truth of that matter, then finding something that's consoling might be nice. Yeah, if death, the end of our existence, is the most anxiety uh, provoking for us individually, then, you know, for some, the belief in afterlife might be, you know, something that appeases uh, this uncertainty. Uh, now, of course, uh, Jean Paul Sartre also perceived death slightly in a different way, anxiety provoking not simply that it is linked to uncertainty that we don't know uh, when we might die, but uh, you know, anxiety provoking is also the, that we have a choice to end our own life, which is why you know, he said when we are standing in front of the abyss, it is the possibility that we throw ourselves in the abyss that is anxiety provoking, not only the possibility of falling. So I would say that uh, yes, the uncertainty in regard to our existence is uh, is anxiety prov provoking, but as Kierkegaard already pointed out, the immortality is even more, the possibility of immortality would be even more anxiety provoking. Yes. I mean, Philip, you've mentioned that sometimes it could be logical to adopt a religious position, even if you don't believe in God. Can you, can you explain a little more about that proposition? Yeah. Well, can I just add something, just start, just going to the last question, just add, wanted to add to Simon's point that... Um, you know, I think an important, another important thing is getting more working class voices in the media. You know, the, you don't hear many regional accents on on the BBC. You know, I think we're, we're great with, we're getting better, sorry, with, you know, diversity of, of race and gender, but class, we're still kind of hopeless. So we're only getting one strata of society represented, and that's important for truth as well. On, well, r religious fictionalism, I suppose I don't see that as, 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 a, as a question of truth or knowledge, which is the debate here. I'm, but I think there are certain roles that religion played in, in bringing communities together with shared rites of passage, shared frameworks, especially in a time of individualization and a very commercial culture. Uh, it's important to bring people together in the spirit of the good, and so I, I think there's a, there's a place for sort of why well, I describe myself as a non-believing Christian, as as uh, coming together around certain goals, around certain symbolic truths. Um, I love about Christianity the identifying God with the naked, executed peasant, uh, the guy who hung out with outcasts and sinners and identified with the poor. So embodying those kind of values, I think, is very important. But I mean, just finally, just coming back to knowledge, I suppose I think. Um, certainty is too much to hope for, but I think what we can try and do is have our best guess as to the ultimate nature of reality. And I think, you know, we can take lead from natural science here. I think natural science tries to find the simplest theory able to account for the data. Um, it's just that in my view, it works with a quite limited data set. And I think, as I've said, there are other data points that should inform our theory of reality, the, the reality of consciousness, the reality of value, the reality of abstract objects. I think if we could, as a, as a philosophical and scientific community, uh, try to come together and formulate the simplest theory of reality that is able to accommodate all of these things, if we could perhaps reach some consensus on that issue, then I think that theory might not be the truth, but I think it would be the best guess we are capable of, of the ultimate nature of reality. So I think that's what I believe we should be aiming for. Simon, can I bring you in on the simplest theory of reality and if that's a project you'd, you'd um, like to... <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I spent a, a good part of the last 50 years um, 
uh, trying to develop a view, which I think is a satisfactory view, uh, about the nature of morality and the nature of moral knowledge. And I would guess, as a, as a sociological guess, that only about 30% of the philosophical profession would agree with me <laughs> that I've done any such thing. Uh, there are a lot of people who think that I'm absolutely on the wrong track. Um, and that's not uh, a, a position that's unique to me. This is how philosophers behave. So I think that the hope of finding a unified, you know, um, more or less certain view about the whole nature of reality, where that would include not just a view about ethics, but a view about mathematics and a view about consciousness and a view about uh, perhaps the nature of time and all sorts of metaphysical problems. I think that's a pipe dream. It's a very nice dream, but I think it is a pipe dream. But I'd like to say that I do agree very much with Philip about the, uh, as it were, the ritual um, values of perhaps religion, but certainly music and art. Uh, and of course, a lot of um, the history of religions is a history of their music and art. And um, I think they are very important to community cohesion. Um, and I think they could be very important in you know, diminishing the amount of vandalism that goes on on the web. But um, that's, again, something to hope for rather than to, to expect in the immediate future. Um, I, I know, Philip, you want to come back. I'm just going to ask Renata um, one question, but also do um, come back as well on the simplest theory of reality. But I want to ask you, if you lived your life in relation to a certainty that um, was not true, but you didn't know, and you enjoyed yourself and you were happy, would that be a good life? Um, until until um, I learn the truth, uh, let's say that there is something um, about maybe uh, your past, uh, maybe your parents or something, you know, that uh, you strongly believe that it was a certainty and then you learn that it's, it's otherwise. I, for many people, a whole world can collapse, a, a whole self-perception um, you know, their place in the world, uh, and that can be incredibly, you know, painful for an individual. Learning, you know, that certainty they believed in actually was maybe a lie or a mistake. Yes. Philip, you just wanted to come back in, did you, quickly? Very quickly. I guess Simon thinks I'm being too ambitious. I mean, these things take time, but I do believe we're going through this scientific phase that I've already laid out. It's been going on for a couple of hundred years, and I think it really affects people's identity and sense of themselves and, 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 and is, 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 is in some ways slightly ideological. So I think if we can eventually come out of this period, there might be hope that we could achieve more consensus in philosophy, but you know, who knows? Give it a go. Any closing remarks from um, Renata or Simon? I think there's a lot of agreement between us. Um, that is, uh, I, I, I don't think I've heard anything I really wanted to scream and claw the blackboard about. So, no, I think it's uh, been very satisfactory. Renata, you... Yeah, a reliable media, you know, to, to have media which are checking the story, you know, you know kind of investigating journalism uh, to honor this, to even pay for, for uh, you know, reliable news. Um, I think that's very important because as we know with the new social media, every news is becoming, you know, like uh, equally valuable, whether it was sort of like checked or not. And, you know, we are living in a kind of an ekaization of society where everyone is supposed to, you know, 
figure out how to do uh, his or her own furniture or find his or her uh, knowledge or you know figure out his or her health and that's like a, a big problem so reliable media is something i think we need to cherish and you know support thanks very much to our brilliant speakers renata selecto philip goff and simon blackburn thank you very much thanks for listening to this week's episode of philosophy for our times remember to like subscribe and leave a review on your platform of choice and tune in next week for more big ideas from the world's leading thinkers